find your place in verse 21 of Matthew 16. And while you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. Some years ago, when I was in college, I was having a conversation with some friends, and I don't know why, but somehow the topic of conversation turned to the difference between opera and light opera. And knowing just enough to make a fool of myself, I began to instruct them on the differences between these two styles of opera. But one of the ladies there, she, she just looked at me. She smiled gently, and she waited patiently. And then when I finished making a fool of myself, she said, Will, I know, I sing opera. You see, I knew just enough, but not enough. I knew just enough to make a fool of myself. And part of the problem is that I did not really know to whom I was speaking. In the same way, in the passage before us, we find that the Apostle Peter comes to Jesus and he confesses him as the Christ, and yet he knows just enough to make a fool of himself. He knows just enough to reveal that he doesn't really know to whom he's speaking. So if you found your place in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16, would you follow along as I read to the end of the chapter? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent for this purpose, that he might suffer and die for us, and whom you did not leave in the grave, but you raised back to life, and who reigns at your right hand even now, and who will come again. And we thank you for this truth that we can trust. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would impress it upon our hearts and in our minds, that we might truly learn to be disciples of our risen Lord, follow him, wherever he calls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll turn over in your Bibles a few pages back to Matthew chapter 4, I want to establish the context in which we find this passage. You see there in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus has come to Capernaum and he's heard the news that John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus takes up the message that John had been preaching. And there in verse 17 of chapter 4, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to preach and proclaim the message of the kingdom. 
It was a message that called the people to repent, to turn from their sin and follow Christ. It was a message that called them to recognize the time and the season and what was taking place in Jesus' coming. And in the passages that follow, we see that Jesus demonstrates who he is through authoritative words and through mighty deeds. In recent weeks, I know that as a church, you've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you flip over to the end of that sermon in chapter 7 and verse 28, we see the result of that sermon. We see the effect, that is, that it had upon the people who heard it. And we read in Matthew 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was not one who said, so-and-so says this, and this particular rabbi says this. He was the kind of man who said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and they recognized in the authority of his words that this was someone different. He had an altogether different character. And it wasn't just the things that he said. It was the things that he did. He healed people's diseases. He even raised the dead. He multiplied bread in the wilderness, just as God had done for the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. And in the same way, he controlled the wind and the waves. So that by the time we come to Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus poses this question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's not the first time they've thought about this question. For when he calmed the storm, they said amongst themselves, what sort of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? They had thought about who Jesus was. And so when he asked them, who do people say that I am? They recognized that many were talking about this amazing man who taught with authoritative words and who did mighty deeds. And they said, well, he must be Elijah. Or perhaps he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some said he's Jeremiah. And some said one of the other prophets. But Jesus' disciples, represented by Peter, they, they knew better. When Jesus turns that question and says, who do you say that I am? Peter stands forward and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter didn't draw this conclusion because he was so smart. He didn't come to this view because he had read the scriptures so, uh, in so much detail. He came to this understanding as Jesus affirmed it because God had revealed it to him. And so Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, that is, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had come to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so too the disciples with him. But what, we're, what we find in the passage before us is that Peter only had half the picture. He confessed Jesus as the Christ, but he did not want a Christ who would suffer. That was not his understanding of what it meant to say that you are the Christ. Surely in his mind, passages like Daniel chapter 7 were rattling around in his brain. Jesus alludes to that passage when he calls himself the Son of Man two times in this chapter. And actually 29 times in the whole Gospel of Matthew, he frequently refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
constantly calling to their mind Daniel 7, where Daniel sees this vision of one like a son of man who comes to the Ancient of Days, and he receives a dominion, he receives a kingdom that is to be over all kingdoms. He'll to be, be one who receives from God the reign of the whole world, the whole universe, forever and ever and ever. And Peter says, that's who you are. You're the Christ. And you're a king. And that means a kingdom. For you came preaching the kingdom. And I want to be part of that kingdom. But in Peter's mind, his, his desire is motivated by pride. And what you'll see as the gospel unfolds is that over and over again, Jesus corrects the misunderstanding of his disciples. These men who are so self-consumed, who are arguing with one another over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who will sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. And so at this crucial point in the gospel, as they've come to understand the preaching of the kingdom and recognize him as the Christ, Jesus takes another step and using the same exact language that he used in Matthew 4, 17, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples something else. There he began to preach the kingdom and repentance. Here he began to show them the cross. I use that word, the cross, as shorthand for all of these things that Jesus says will take place. Four things that he lists, and the specificity, the precision is remarkable. He says that it's necessary, that he must go to Jerusalem. He can't just die anywhere. He can't be crucified in Galilee. Christ said, it has to happen there. And I have to make the conscious decision to go there. I must go to Jerusalem. And when I'm there, he says, I must suffer, not at the hand of the Romans primarily, not at the hand of other Gentiles, but at the hand of the leaders of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, the hand of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin is this group that, that, that they were a part of. It would have included the Pharisees, but these are all the leading men in Israel. They're the ones who know the scriptures the best. And Jesus says, they're the ones who must persecute me. I must suffer at their hands. Further, he says, it's necessary that I should be killed. I must die. And fourth, he says, it's necessary that on the third day, I should be raised from the grave. On one hand, Peter understood perfectly well what he was saying. On another hand, he doesn't understand it at all. Over and over again, as Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, they fail to comprehend it, not because they don't understand what he's saying, because what Peter says afterward shows that he understood full well what Jesus was saying. But they didn't understand why it was that it was necessary. And that's why Jesus had to show them. He didn't just tell them. He was showing them. And, and these words suggest that he's doing it over and over and over again. Matthew records three specific predictions. But this phrase, he began to show them, suggests that he's just all the way along the road to Jerusalem, showing them again and again that he has to go to the cross. Now, how did he show them? In the unfolding narrative, we see that he showed it in ways that weren't so different from the way he preached the kingdom. 
We see mighty deeds, for instance, as he's transfigured on the mount, on the Mount of Olivet, and he stands there with Moses and Elijah, and yet, even in that, when they're so transfixed by his glory, he turns their attention back to the cross. He shows them through his authoritative teaching as he teaches in parables and in other ways. And yet through it all, again and again, he points them back to the cross. He shows them by teaching them how to imitate him, to follow his example of suffering and humility, placing a child in their midst at one point and telling them that they must become like that child and they must learn to accept a humble person one like a child in his name. And through all of these things, Jesus is showing them the cross. But most importantly, perhaps, he's showing it to them from Scripture. He's showing them that it was necessary because it's what God had said through the mouth of the prophets must take place. And yet, puzzlingly, strangely, the gospel writers very rarely tell us exactly what Jesus said. Very rarely do we hear Jesus telling us what verses in the Old Testament specifically predicted these things. How was it that he came to the conclusion that he must be crucified in Jerusalem, that he must suffer at the hand of the religious leaders? Surely he did tell his disciples and show these things from the Scriptures, and he did teach them. After he was raised, Luke tells us in Luke 24, as he's on the Emmaus Road, Jesus said to them, did I not show you again and again from the law of Moses and from the Psalms and from the prophets that these things had to take place? But the gospel writers don't give us the specific details of that instruction very often. And whatever the reason for doing that is, the result is very clear. The proof that Jesus interpreted the scripture correctly is that the Son of Man went as it is written of him, and he did not stay in the grave. The proof is that he put his money where his mouth was. You see, if he had gone to Jerusalem, and he had suffered, and he had been crucified, and he had been put in the tomb, and he had stayed there, everyone would have known. It was not true. It was not so. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18... There in this passage, Moses told the people of Israel that one day God would raise up a prophet like Moses. He said, he'll raise up a prophet like me. And when he comes, he said, you will listen to him. You must listen to him. And then in that whole context, as he helps him to understand who are the true prophets of God, he says, this is how you will know the true prophet from the false prophet. And there in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. But Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hand of the chief priests, scribes, and the leaders of the people. I must die, and I must be raised on the third day. And everything happened exactly as he said, and thereby he showed that he was the prophet, the greater prophet, the greater Moses, to whom Moses pointed, the one who fulfilled all of the purposes of God for his people. And that's the proof. And for that reason, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, can have confidence that this is true. For when you read the Gospel of Matthew, when you read any of the Gospels, know that you are reading the record of the testimony of eyewitnesses 
people who saw the risen Christ. And you can have confidence that their testimony is true. Just as Luke began his gospel by saying, I consulted with many eyewitnesses to the things that have been fulfilled among us. And in his first letter, the Apostle John wrote, we are writing about what we have seen and what we have heard and the things that we have touched and understood concerning the word of life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells the Corinthians that more than 500 men and women saw the risen Christ. And at the time when Paul wrote that letter, many of them were still alive. And though they're dead now, that testimony is sure and we can be confident in it. And for that reason, we can believe the gospel and we can believe that Christ was true for he indeed was raised. So we know that he was right and he interpreted Scripture rightly, even if we can't find exactly how every passage in all of Scripture points to him. But this morning, one was read, Isaiah 52, verse 13, through 53, verse 12, well known as one of the great servant songs of Isaiah, the song of the suffering servant. For 2,000 years, Christians have read that text and confessed, this is about Christ. In fact, it's one of the clearest litmus tests that allows us to distinguish between the true believer and the one who is not a believer. What do you say when you read those words of Isaiah 52? All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you read that and say, yes, that is clearly about Christ? For 2,000 years, Christians have said, yes, amen. That speaks of Christ. And many passages in the Old Testament, like that passage, speak of what Christ had to do. And at a time when his disciples did not yet understand it, he had comprehended it all. He had understood the purposes of God. He had understood what God had said concerning him. And he had committed himself to do the will of his Father by going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, trusting that the Lord indeed would raise him from the grave as he had promised so many times through Moses and through the prophets, through the, in the Psalms, and all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But Peter had a problem. He couldn't accept this. As we've already seen, it was because he was blinded by his pride and he was blinded by his ambition. And he had no conception of a Christ who suffered. So he says, far be it from you. This will never happen to you. And many times throughout his life, As he walked with Christ prior to the cross, he put himself forward, sought to play the man, to act as one who was of great courage, said, I will die before you die, Lord. And yet, Jesus would say to him, would you die for me? Peter needed to understand why it was necessary that the Christ should go to the cross. He needed to understand that Peter needed Christ to die for him. And we need to understand that too. You see, our hindsight, it's not as sharp as we like to think. Peter was looking forward and couldn't see the cross clearly, but we look back and very often we can't see it clearly either. We might confess the historical reality of the cross. Yes, indeed, Jesus died. Yes, indeed, he rose. But when Paul presents the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, there's an important word there. The word for. There's a reason he died. He died for our sins. And we need to keep that 
truth before us at all times. It's foundational to our life in Christ. It's not just an elementary truth that we enter through and we confess our sin and we receive forgiveness and then we forget all about that and we're on to other things, maybe more interesting things, or we're on to trying to live a life of legalistic, pharisaic obedience where we trust in our obedience to merit our favor before God. Not obeying out of faith, not obeying out of an attitude of humility and affection for our Lord, but thinking somehow we earn God's favor day by day. We forget the cross. Our hindsight's not 20-20 in this regard. That's why we need passages like this that show us that Jesus consistently reminded and showed the cross to his disciples. They had to understand that this was the foundational truth of their life as disciples, and if they didn't accept it, they couldn't follow him. And so he says in a stunning rebuke to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was a stumbling block in Jesus' way. He calls him Satan, and it's no accident that Satan's name means adversary. Peter didn't know it. He thought he was coming to the defense of Christ, but Christ told him, you are standing in my way. You are standing against me. And these words recall the words that Jesus said to Satan when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. In the final temptation, Jesus said, go away, Satan. Get out of here. Be gone. It's the same word for you shall worship the Lord your God alone and Him only you shall serve, Jesus said there. But there's one additional word here that's a sign of Christ's grace to Peter. He doesn't just say go away. He says go away behind me. He doesn't cast him off entirely, but he challenges him to change his perspective. Peter's mind was set on earthly things, on the things of man. Jesus challenged him to set his mind on the things of God and called him to go away behind me, that is, to follow me. And so then, he instructs all his disciples, saying, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, again, the same word, if anyone would come behind me, let him do three things. Let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus calls us to discipleship, when he calls us to follow him, he calls us to a life of self-denial. He calls us to a life of taking up our cross. The two things are bound up together. It's not so much a life of tragedy where we just experience one tragedy after another and say, oh, woe is me, but I'm taking up my cross. That's not the character of it. It's one where we constantly, day by day, look away from ourselves, deny ourselves. And in denying ourselves, we're confessing Christ. We're confessing Him rightly. That denial is bound up with that confession, you are the Christ, the Christ who had to suffer, die, and rise. And we commit ourselves to following Him in the way that He led which means that we're willing to endure suffering and persecution if it should come for the sake of knowing Him and following Him. It means that we're willing to give of ourselves, to live in humility, 
to humble ourselves, to serve others. All because we believe that the reward of knowing Christ is far better than anything that we can have on earth. But we have to admit that this is hard. It doesn't come natural to us. Sometimes when I try to instruct my youngest daughter, I'll try to explain to her that she needs to stop blaming everyone else, her sisters or whomever, for what's going, why she's disobeying or something like that. And her favorite words are, but I just. But I just want. Or but I just. Or but so-and-so did this. So much of the time, we're like four-year-olds too. We look at ourselves and we focus on ourselves and what we want and who did wrong to us. We need to learn to deny ourselves. We need to grow up into maturity into Christ. That's what it means to follow Him, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and go after Him where He leads. But this requires us to change our perspective. It requires us to think differently about the world. For the first 16 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus teaching kingdom values. It's a topsy-turvy value system. It turns everything on its head. And so if you recall these words from the Sermon on the Mount, things like, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with him too. That's not the world's value system. That's not what people will say to you if you're applying for a job. They'll say, well, fudge your resume a little bit. Build yourself up a little bit. Tell them how great you are. Sell yourself well. Go after that good job, and if someone's in your way, knock them over, tear them down. That's the world's value system. It's no different from Jesus' own day, where the disciples are bickering with one another about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, again, turns that value system on its head. And he does it in three ways. He does it by giving us a new set of priorities. New priorities that are rooted in an understanding of the promise of the Christian life. Look at what he says in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you want life? you want eternal life? Jesus says, lose your life for my sake doesn't mean that you have to be martyred in order to gain eternal life. It means that you give up all the hopes of this life, all your ambitions and all your pride for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of following Him. You lose your life. You deny yourself. And what do you, what's the promise? What do you find? You find life. That's the promise of the Christian life. Life for those who will follow Christ wherever He leads. So we need a new set of values, a new set of priorities that is rooted in the promise of the Christian life. We also need new values that result from an understanding of of the immeasurable value of the Christian life. And so again, Jesus teaches in verse 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can't buy eternal life. You can't give up something that's a, a great pearl of great price, for instance, and somehow gain eternal life that way. And if you devote your life to earthly riches, and that's what you most want, that's what you spend your life trying to get, 
you'll find out in the end it's worth nothing. I was talking to an older gentleman earlier this week over dinner, and he was thinking about a news article he recently read about a famous prosperity preacher, and it reported this man's net worth, this man who preaches a false gospel that God wants us to have our, our best things now, that he wants us to be rich in this present life. This man's worth over $100 million by preaching this false gospel. This man was lamenting it. And then a wry smile worked across his face, and he said, but he can't take it with him. And he wasn't rejoicing what was going to happen to this man if he doesn't repent. But he was reminded not to be jealous of that man and what he has in this life. He can't take it with him. But we have a promise that's eternal and sure and forever. And that's what Jesus reminds his disciples of here. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It won't profit him anything. What can he give in return for his soul? Nothing. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler. Jesus gave him a very specific instruction that was an application of what he said to his disciples when he said, take up your cross and deny yourself. And to this rich young man who came to him and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded that, by saying that the thing you need to do to deny yourself is to sell all that you have. Come and follow me. But that man was sorrowful because he loved his wealth and he loved his riches. Jesus didn't say that to him in spite. As Mark tells us, he looked at him and loved him and told him, sell everything you have and come follow me. And you will have treasure in heaven. And the man said, no thanks. I'd rather not. There's a stark warning in this passage. We need to understand that Christ died as our substitute in our place to atone for our sin and to turn away the wrath of God. That's an essential truth to the gospel that we confess. But I also want you to understand that you can know that in your mind. And if you hear Jesus say, take up your cross and come follow me, and you say, no, thank you, I'd rather not, all that you know in your head means nothing. It's no good if that doctrine doesn't work itself into your heart, causing you to say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that everything you say is true, and that indeed you will fulfill all your good promises, and so I will follow. Not because I'm trying to earn your favor somehow, but because I know that you're true, that when you make a promise, you're good for it like no one else has ever been. So we must put aside these worldly ambitions and turn our eyes to Christ and follow Him where He leads. And third, we need a new confidence. We need a new confidence that results from our understanding of the certainty of the Christian life. Jesus shows this to His disciples in two ways. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Here Jesus is not saying, again, that you earn your salvation, but rather the works that you do, if they flow from faith, they are the evidence of a true belief. And you will be repaid for those things, not because you've done them and you somehow earned your salvation, but all on the grace of God through faith in Christ. And yet it's true. When Christ comes again with his angels... He will repay us for what we have done. And if our faith is not in Him, then beware. He will repay us 
for what we have done. And this is sure, and this is certain, and this is true. For if God did not leave his son in the grave, he will surely send him again with an army of angels. We look to that day with confidence and certainty. The God who's proved himself before will prove himself again. But there's another thing that he says to encourage us, to rest upon the certainty of his word. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And there are, this is a difficult passage to understand because we're not quite sure what Jesus is saying. Is he saying that some among the twelve are still living even now? And different interpreters have different responses. Some would say that as we turn into chapter 17 and G- see Jesus transfigured on the mount, that that is the fulfillment, that they see him in his glory. Others say that perhaps John, when he saw the vision that's recorded in the Revelation, he did see the Son of Man coming with his angels, at least in a visionary way, and was able to present the certainty of that. Rather, though, I think that what Jesus is saying requires us to understand what he's been saying about the nature of the kingdom all along. It's like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree, the greatest of the trees. Or as Daniel sees and interprets in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's like a little rock that grows into a mountain that fills the earth. And it's true that as you read through the book of Acts, you see that the disciples did see the kingdom come in power, not the way that we would expect. But they saw the gospel go forth in a mighty way so that by the time their lives were nearly over, they could say, The gospel has been preached throughout all the world that we know, at least. And there are churches in every place in this empire because Christ is reigning. His glory is being seen through more and more people learning to live a life of humble discipleship, follow Christ. But whatever we say and how we interpret this, what I want you to see is how this encourages us with the certainty of the Christian life. Because no, His coming is even more certain than our death. It's been said that there are two certainties in life, two sure things, death and taxes. And yet, this is even more certain than death. For if any of us are alive when He comes again, we will not taste death. But we will see Him coming. His coming is more sure than death itself. And for that reason, we can rest with confidence that the life that he calls us to is a life that is good and a life that will lead to joy, joy forever and ever. And if it means some temporary suffering in this life, then we can embrace that with joy, knowing that our Lord traveled that path before us and God did not leave him in the grave. We can rest with confidence with these new values and these new priorities because we know that this indeed is true. For thus the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you speak truly in all that you say. Indeed, your word proves true. Every word of yours proves true. As you've said through your prophets, we confess it too, Lord, because we look back We read the Gospels and we see that everything that you said would come to pass indeed came to pass. And even if we don't always understand how some things were predicted, we know that because 
you did not abandon the soul, the body of your son to shale or to corruption, but raised him from the grave. We know that you, O Lord, keep all your word and all your promises. And so we trust, we pray that you would help our unbelief and increase our trust. We might learn day by day to trust you all the more. That you are true and that you are good and that you are loving and that when you call us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, the only reason that you do this is because indeed you are the God of steadfast love and faithfulness who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people forever and evermore. So we pray with thankfulness and gratitude in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.